Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. We're valued and bear even more resemblance to the stock markets in, in those two previous examples. But I think it goes much deeper than that. First of all, we have this problem of debt and, and the role that, that debt plays in, in essentially stagnating economic growth over the long term. Right now in the U.S., globally, but we'll focus on the U.S. for now, and I apologize if I, a lot of what I'm saying absolutely relates to where a lot of my other audiences are from, Canada, Australia, to some extent New Zealand, England. I mean, that's a bulk of it. There's some other countries as well, but that's the bulk of it. Um, Europe as a whole. What I'm saying here absolutely relates to your countries or continents as well. But I'm just focusing on the U.S. for now. But but again, there's a lot of, of similarities here. But debt, a lot of debt at the consumer level, the corporate level, and of course at the government level with no real attempts at deleveraging. There, there's been a f- small amount of deleveraging in, in some areas, for instance, in, in, in consumer debt, um, but, but not across the board in consumer debt. Corporate debt continues to rise as a percentage of GDP here in the United States. Obviously, uh, government debt continues to rise as a percentage of GDP. And, and debt, it, it chokes out economic growth. And in many ways, it chokes out profit growth for a lot of corporations. If, if you're drowning in debt, if, if the, the cost to service your debt is eating up a fair bit of your profit, it's going it's gonna to make things, it's going to make it very difficult to be profitable long term. And and of course long term profits, never mind short term momentum, long term profits in theory should be what moves stocks higher. But we all know that that's not the case over the last 10 years. This stock market as I've said multiple times is largely a, a product of of credit growth, debt growth, um stock buybacks and a liquidity from the Fed and, and mostly from the Fed and other central banks. I mean, that's that's really what's fueling this this stock uh, bull market over the last 10 years. Liquidity, buybacks, and debt growth. But those things can all reverse as well. Um, another reason why I think that, that this stock market is is destined for, for a, a Japan or 1929 scenario is is that ultimately those tools that are being used right now by central banks the world over, quantitative easing and and lower interest rates, they're becoming less and less effective. Uh, ultimately, they're they're done to to uh, stimulate economic growth, stimulate debt creation, and to protect those that are over leveraged, lower interest rates and QE. That's that's basically their goal. However. Uh, they're becoming less and less effective. And, th- and that's totally expected. That's what happens with this type of stimulus. It becomes less and less effective over time. Just like with an, uh, an alcoholic, uh, you need more and more alcohol over time to get the job done. And that's another reason why I think we're, we're moving into a situation here where uh, the very thing that has fueled the stock market over the last 10 years is no longer going to work. And it probably won't work again, or at least for a very long time, until there's a massive deleveraging, until debt 
is is done away with, right? Which brings me to another potential scenario, another potential reason for why I think stocks are in for um, uh, decades of stagnation. That is inflation and overall economic ruin because of inflation. Now, yes, stocks are a better place to be in the midst of an inflationary, highly inflationary. I'm not talking 3%. I'm talking 10, 20, 30% inflation. Stocks are a better place to be than bonds or cash, right? Um, but it doesn't mean that the underlying companies aren't going to be influenced by that inflation. They are. They're going to be damaged by that inflation, right? It's another reason for why I think uh, stocks are in for a, a long-term bear market. And finally, demographics. Demographics, I think, plays a huge role in this. Uh, you have to understand that if you're looking from now dating back to, we'll say 1949. That's a, what? Somebody do the math for me. 60, 70-year period? 70-year period. Where... Stocks have have essentially moved up. Um, the U.S. economy has done fairly well, with the exception of inflation in the '70s, crushing interest rates in the '80s, uh, dot com popping in, in uh, 2001, and and the Great Recession in in 2008-2009. With the exception of that, the U.S. economy, the U.S. stock market has has done relatively well. But but most of that was fueled by um, first the Bretton Woods Agreement, the fact that the U.S. came out of World War II. Uh, with with far less economic and demographic damage compared to to and, and don't I won't forget demographics I'm going to get to that here in a second but we we came out of World War II much better than most of Europe Japan China etc. <clears throat> Plus we had the world reserve currency and then once we were taking out the gold standard in the early 70s then we had basically unrestrained debt growth that we could use to to grow the uh, economy falsely but but grow the economy. Um, stave off uh, um, total you know, financial crises, etc. But but we're coming into an environment here where where those things that have worked for us in the past are are unlikely to work for us in the future. Debt uh, creation is becoming less and less effective at fueling economic growth. Um, we no longer have a gold-backed currency. Um, the U.S. dollar as a global reserve currency is is slowly failing. But another major uh, shift over these decades is, is demographics, right? We had the baby boomers, and then we had Gen X, and then we had you know millennials and whatnot. But over time, what is happening in the U.S. and Europe and, and Japan, certainly Japan has it the worst, Japan and South Korea, is that the population is getting older and older. The, the birth rate is just not high enough to support long-term high amounts of economic growth. And, and thus, you know, in theory, long-term uh, growth in the stock market, right? The stock market should be reflecting economic growth. And instead, what we have is an aging population. An aging population is a more expensive population. I'm not saying we should we should kill the elderly or anything like that. But, you know, once you get over a certain age, you, you're very expensive to, to keep alive, basically. I'm just talking in very utilitarianism terms. I certainly believe in the sanctity of life, but it's expensive, Old people are expensive. An aging population is more expensive than a younger population, and they're less productive as a whole. Once you get over a certain age, I'm sorry, you you have a lot of of to to give back to society, but generally speaking, a 25 year old is going to be more productive than an 85 year old for the economy, that the cost and 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 benefit ratio there. And demographics, I think, is a huge reason for why I think. The U.S., Japan, and Europe are ultimately moving in that direction towards towards Japan in 1989, U.S. in 1929. 
we're moving in that direction because the demographic picture is just not pretty. And without a strong demographics, without a young population, a high birth rate, etc., it's difficult to get long-term robust economic growth. There's other things that matter too, right? Um, the the uh, energy return on investment when it comes to oil and, and other um, forms of energy. There, there's other things to consider here. Don't get me wrong. But demographics are one of the most important and one of the most often ignored aspects of long-term economic growth and long, long-term stock market growth. I mean, in theory, when you're making a bet on the stock market, you're making a bet on either a long-term growth picture for the U.S. economy or whatever economy you're in, a long-term growth prediction uh, or a long-term prediction on the Fed and their ability to, to manage the markets, uh, or, or something else, right? Some other major event that's going to lead to long-term profitability for, for U.S. stocks. And I'm just not seeing that right now. I'm not saying don't buy stocks, but I'm saying challenge that assumption. When you hear somebody say that, say, but what if they're wrong? What if your financial advisor, and I should say none of this should be taken as financial advice or anything, simply my own opinion here. Do your own research, Talk to a financial advisor if you want, even if you'll disagree with them. But when you hear your your colleague, your coworker, etc., say, you know, I'm just going with da 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 for investment because it's always worked. It worked for my parents, for my grandparents. Challenge that. Bring up Japan, 1989, U.S. 1929. Challenge their assumptions. Challenge your own assumptions. Do I think silver and gold is where it's at? Yeah. Do I think diversification is good? Yes, I do. But I don't think um, we should uh, kid ourselves and say that stocks are always going to be a good investment, just like we shouldn't kid ourselves and say that silver and gold can can totally replace stocks, because in many ways they can't. They don't have dividends. They don't have a yield like a bond. They can appreciate in value, and they can protect your wealth. That's what silver and gold are good for. They excel in that, and that's why I'm such a big fan of them. But also... What I'm trying to say here is be willing to diversify. Challenge your assumptions about precious metals, but also challenge yours and so many others' perceptions, assumptions about the stock market and stocks as a whole and doing what has done in the past, been done in the past, just because it worked then. As always, I'd like to thank you all from the bottom of my heart for tuning into today's podcast and God bless. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, welcome back. So recently I put out a episode titled, uh, Are You Making These Seven Silver Stacking Mistakes? And I was talking about different mistakes that I've made or I've witnessed in in my time stacking silver as well as just running this this channel, this podcast. And as a whole, it it received fairly good um, reviews from what I can tell. But there was one comment that I wanted to zero in on. 
It's from a Scott Hill. It was a comment. He said, uh, let me start off with the fact that I really enjoy your videos. So I often wonder if there's an eighth mistake. And, and he gives this story of his grandfather who back in 1971 bought 50 shares of Exxon stock at $2.32 a share for a total of $116. Remember, this was early 70s before a ton of inflation over the next decade, etc. Uh, and then he goes on about the, what the price of silver and gold was at the time. The, the, the gist of this comment, without reading it word for word, because he gets into quite a bit of numbers and figures here, the gist of it is that his grandfather, his investment in Exxon, does pretty darn well, right? 50 shares in 1971, $116. In 2005, that same amount of Exxon uh, was was worth... Uh, almost $190,000, right? So pretty good, pretty good return. And it's no secret that that historically, stocks and as well as fixed income or you know bonds and whatnot with a higher yield, they have historically been a pretty good investment. Uh, for for generations, including this this person's uh, grandfather, probably his father, certainly my father, my grandfather, multiple generations. A, a long-term uptrend in the stock market has been very beneficial for a lot of investors, a lot of soon-to-be or current retirees, and it has had the effect of instilling a, a lot of confidence in the stock market and the fact that it always goes up. And so, so to to uh, you know to add to my video, my my previous podcast, I would agree with Scott and say that yeah, there's an eighth mistake, and that is lack of a diversification and maybe lack of respect sometimes for some stackers in other asset classes. Ultimately, it's up to you what you do with your money, your portfolio. If you want to throw it all into silver and gold, great. I mean, I think there's there's a lot to be said for silver and gold, but there is a lot to be said for other investments as well. However, that's not what this video is about. I'm not making this podcast today about why I think stocks are the greatest thing in the world. Instead, I want to be devil's advocate here, as I so often am when it comes to mainstream consensus on the economy or markets or certain investment strategies. Devil's advocate here on the stock market and why I'm not going with a crowd and saying, you know, if, if regardless of where you are in, in your life, the best thing you can do is, is buy stocks and hold them for the long term. There's a lot of individuals, a lot of investment advisors that have done just that. And, and it makes them look really smart because, hey, let's, let's be honest, over the last 10 years, it's been the thing to do, right? If you sold in, in 2015, if you sold in 2016, you, you missed out on big gains, right? If, if you sold a year ago when the stock market was crashing, well, you missed out on a pretty nice recovery. However... The number one thing that I'm really worried about with the stock market is is not that we're going to see uh, that we're, we're going to stop seeing those types of, of returns at 10%, 15% returns and whatnot over a one or two year uh, period of time, right? Um, buying low and waiting for the market to rise is generally speaking still not a bad strategy as long as you're you're smart about it. And you don't just maybe just straight up buy indexes. Maybe you do a little more research when it comes to stocks. Okay. One of my big concerns though is that conventional wisdom turns out to be incorrect. And what is conventional wisdom or conventional 
knowledge, whatever you want to call it, some people would call common sense when it comes to, to investing, that stocks are always going to go up. And and I want to take that assumption to task today and and talk about why I am not sold on that idea. And in fact, I tend to, to think that in the next decade or two, we're going to see that theory, that that uh, common refrain that stocks will always go up, buy and hold, to be absolutely false. Absolutely false over the next decade or two. Now, maybe not in every stock market, not every stock, certainly, but when we're looking at the U.S. indexes and certainly maybe some indexes from Japan, um, Jap- uh, European indexes, I think that's going to be the case. Now, stay tuned for why I think that's going to be the case in a couple minutes, but I want to start off with uh, a pair of examples of just that happening. The first one I want to talk about is Japan and their Nikkei 225 index, right? Treat it as like the S&P 500, right? The Japanese version. In, well, I'll start off from here. In 1975-ish, 1974, the Nikkei was trading around 5,000. By the late 80s and the early 1990s, it had risen almost to 40,000. Right from about five thousand, from mid seventies to early nineties, uh, about thirty-eight thousand, we'll say, as a high, just as a ballpark number. A great return. If you had bought Japanese stocks in nineteen seventy, in nineteen sixty, nineteen fifty, if you look at the price, it is parabolic, going up to nineteen ninety, basically nineteen ninety one. However, the Nikkei two twenty five today is not at 30,000, 35,000, 40,000, 50,000. It actually currently sits uh, about 23,500, a little over that. 23,500, meaning that from 1990 to 2019, that's you know basically almost 30 years there, the Nikkei has not moved to the upside. In fact, it's fallen from about 38,000 to a little over 23,000. And I want to make myself clear, it never found those highs again. It collapsed pretty quickly to the ballpark of of 20,000, 15,000. In fact, its lowest during the Great Recession, it was under 10,000. And sure, if you bought during that time period, it did move up since then. It's, it's It's actually doubled, more than doubled since then. However, if you look over the long term, if you were, even if you were dollar cost averaging all the way down, your investment has basically done nothing unless you got in um, post 2010. Unless you got in post 2010, your investment in Japanese, the Japanese Nikkei has basically done nothing. And, and this is not inflation adjusted. Think of all the inflation that has also occurred in Japan over that 30 year time span. It has been a lost cause. It's been a lost investment for roughly 30 years now. Now, yes, uh, traders, people are maybe speculating more than just long-term investing, buying and holding, looking at dividends and whatnot. And and again, I should mention that there are dividends that we have to bring into this as well, right? That uh, stock price appreciation is not the only way you can, can gain value. But if you're speculating, yeah, you can you can make returns on their market. There's plenty of ups and downs to buy and sell. But as a whole, the buy and hold strategy, 
that millions, hundreds of millions of people the world over use to, to basically fund their retirement is, has not worked for Japan for a number of decades. I mean, the idea behind saving for retirement through this buy and hold is ultimately compound interest. The idea behind it is that if you diversify between stocks and maybe some other assets, you know, in the case, you know, the the ideal diversification for a lot of financial advisors would be, you know, if you look at something like like a pension fund, you have equity, you have both domestic and international equity, you have private equity, you have commercial bonds, government bonds, a bit of cash, maybe some commercial real estate, right? A whole pool of assets. And as a whole, you're targeting a certain return. The idea behind compound interest is that it can be extremely powerful, right? If your compound interest is 8% a year, 10% a year, and you start contributing to that at 25 years old, even if you stop at 35 years old and you just leave it there, you're going to be in a good spot in terms of retirement, you know, obviously depending on how much you put in. Compound interest is a powerful tool. But if you don't get that compound interest because an entire... Um, asset class in a country totally un- underperforms for like a decade, or in this case, like three decades, that brings down your overall return. All of a sudden, you're seeing negative returns, maybe an average of one or 2% a year. Uh, and, and that's not a great way to save, especially since during that same time period, um, in, in the 90s, and even for, to some extent into 2000s, you could have gotten better returns on, on something like bonds, like U.S. government bonds or something, right? I want to provide another example, though. That's, that's Japan. How about the United States? Uh, the United States had a, a similar thing happen, which we did ultimately come out of, um, but it occurred in, uh, well, during the Great Depression. The Dow Jones, 100, uh, or just the Dow Jones, actually. It's not 100. Um, the Dow Jones, of course, peaked in, in 1929. It was, it was a mania, basically. Um, and then, of course, we had uh, the stock market crash in 1929 and the Great Depression. Um, at its peak, the Dow Jones, if I remember correctly, was around 400 in 1929. It did not recover that until the early to mid-1950s, over two decades of lost performance. Yes, there was dividend growth along the way. There was also inflation. Um, once once you uh, you know get out of some of the deflation that we witnessed early on in the uh, the Great Depression, or for for a good chunk of the Great Depression. Um, but as a whole, the the value of that equity was sideways over a twenty plus year period. Now, why am I worried about this? This is two examples. There's plenty more examples. Those are two of the most notable ones. Most um, widely quoted. In fact, you know, I, uh, I saw a comment. There's, there's some tweet out there and I forget who it was talking about how easy it is to, to buy into stocks, right? Just dollar cost average, whatever. And, and somebody was commenting and they basically said, yeah, it's super easy unless we get Japan or 1929. Meaning <laughs> what happens if our assumptions about the stock market always going up are shown to be absolutely wrong. And that's sort of what I'm getting at here. I think our assumptions are wrong. I'm not going to fight the stock market now, right? At all-time highs and whatnot. 
But what I'm saying is that when we do get a sizable crash, not a 10%, not even a 20%, but I'm talking about a, a long drawn out multiple year bear market. We may never see it recover to where it is today. And if we do, it could be decades in the future or simply just fueled by by inflation, right? And if you look at the inflation-adjusted uh, stock market average, then then it, it would tell a more accurate story of stagnation or just negative returns year over year. I think we're heading in that direction. But why do I think that's the case? Well, I think for for a couple of reasons, the, the situation we have in the U.S. in terms of our stock market has some there's some resemblance to 1929 and Japan early 1990 or late 1980s the the first obvious resemblance is that well this has been a very long drawn out bull market and that valuations currently are are stretched by just about every measure they're stretched stocks are are overvalued and yeah they can go higher right just like bonds i mean bonds are a lot of government bond a lot of uh, government debt is is negative yielding, meaning the price is very high, but the yields can go more negative. The price can go higher just because uh, something's overvalued doesn't mean it can't go higher. That's the last couple of years has been a lesson in just that. But stocks are overvalued relative to economic growth, re- relative to the underlying strength of these corporations, and of course, corporate debt is a huge problem as well. It, they're overvalued, and and that's kind of the the most obvious comparison between uh u.s 19 or u.s 2019 and japan 1989 and and u.s 1929 stocks are overvalued and and you know if if we get a blow off top if the stock market moves up another five percent you know they're going to become more 